welcome to the Cork Church Podcast. We are so glad that you are joining us today. We hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and encourages you in the things of the Lord. Enjoy the message. Praise God. Well, good evening, everyone. I hope everyone is doing okay on this uh, rainy spring evening. So fair play to anyone who got in here this evening, that's what I say. I had to come in, I had no choice. <laughs> um, so just in preparing this word, I was interested to note that um, the last two messages we've had uh, from Pastor Nick and Pastor Steve were in the uh, topic, or in, on the general subject of the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys. Uh, Pastor Steve last week was taking us to Philippi where we had the account of the jailer and all that happened there in Philippi. And Pastor Nick then at the weekend jumped forward 10 years to the letter to the Philippians, uh, Paul writing from his prison confinement in Rome. Uh, so what I've, the, the topic I'm, I'm on tonight is, is still on the theme of, of the apostle, um, but I'm going to reverse a few years, somewhere roughly halfway in between uh, the two messages we've heard recently, Paul is in the middle of his third uh, missionary journey. It's about 61 AD, in or, sorry, 57 AD in or around that. And he's now writing to the Roman church, the church in Rome where he, he's ended up in prison there as we were hearing at the weekend. So I'm going to speak a little bit about just this beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, but just to give a little bit of context and background to this letter and to the church here. And there's, again, just looking up the various commentators, the people who've researched this topic and who've researched the history, there's not a lot known about how this church was actually founded, unlike many of the churches we read about in, in Paul's letters. The, the general thought is that it wasn't probably founded by an apostle, by Paul or any of the other apostles, that it's likely that it grew out of perhaps believers coming from Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost where there were people from Rome there. Um, or perhaps it was just the movement of the gospel as it went out through Asia and Greece and you know maybe Jews returning then to Rome. There was a very big Jewish community there at the time, and it's likely that the church started out at least as a Jewish converts church in this grade. This, of course, this was the center of the whole Roman Empire. Um, and then, you know, there would have been conversions in the Gentile world, and by the time Paul writes this letter, it's very definitely a mix of Jew, converted Jews and converted Gentiles. Now, it's just in terms of the history, a few years before this letter was written, uh, the Caesar at the time called Claudius had actually banished the Jews from Rome for a few years. You, if you know your Acts, you might remember that Priscilla and Aquila were banished. They were Jews who had been living in Rome, and Paul met them after they'd been kicked out of Rome along with the other Jews. But they've since returned. And it's likely, again, just a general thought, is it's likely that this return of the Jews to Rome and perhaps the Convert, the Christian Jews returning to this church, which now was perhaps a lot more Gentile-oriented, um, it perhaps 
you know, accentuated some of the tensions that existed between the early Jewish Christians and the early Gentile Christians. And issues like whether Jewish and Gentile Christians were equal in the gospel and under this new covenant, whether their Jews had any special place or standing. These were the types of issues that were, are being addressed in this gospel. Now, in some ways, that kind of temporary context doesn't really impact us hugely. It's not directly relevant to us. We're Gentile believers. Um, but the great principles of the gospel that are triggered for Paul to outline in this book are some of the most amazing, remarkable expositions of the gospel in the whole scripture. It's truly a remarkable book. It's not an easy book. It's a remarkable book, though. So I just want to take a little bit of a look into the early part of this book. Um, and I'm just doing it under three, uh, three sections. The beating heart of the apostle and then the two unveilings. And we'll, we'll, we'll address them as we come to them. But maybe just initially we could read a few verses from the first chapter if you have a device or a Bible. And we'll read a few verses into this uh, letter to the Romans. And we'll take it from verse 7. To all those in Rome, writes Paul, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up 
to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And we'll leave it there more or less. Just a couple of other little verses. It says, it goes on to say, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then it goes on later on to say that since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So praise God. We'll just leave it there. And let's just briefly pray then and commit this message to the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this evening so far, Lord, for your presence and for the blessing of your spirit among us, for the joy of participating in this wonderful table. And we pray now, Spirit of the living God, that you'll still our hearts, that you'll calm our minds, that you'll help us just to take in what you have to say, even if we're tired, even if we're distracted, that what you want to say to us, Lord, will shine through into our hearts and help me to communicate it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. So as I said, I want to take this under the headings of the beating heart of the Apostle Paul and the two unveilings. Firstly, the beating heart of the, of the Apostle. And I want to extend that to challenge us then, check our pulse. Check our pulse. So let's look at what's Paul's state of mind here as he writes this letter. And I would say, reading from it, that he is straining at the leash to get to Rome. You can feel it from what he's saying. He's eager to get to it. Something inside him is motivating him. He wants to go to Rome. He says, I long to see you. I'm always asking that somehow I may at last succeed in coming to you. I'm eager, he says, to come. And in fact, in chapter 15 of the same epistle, he says, he speaks about the reasons why he's been often hindered in coming to you. He says, but now, since I've no longer any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. So for many years, he's been long, there's something burning inside him to get to Rome. And we read also in Acts on on, on the journey, he comments to someone in Acts 19.21, he says, I must also see Rome. It's burning in him. But yet he's been hindered. He's been longing for years. He's been distracted by other things that he's had to attend. He's been Things have stopped him coming. He's wanted to come. He's praying to come. But he hasn't been able to come. And in fact, he won't yet come for another couple of years at least. I think just an interesting side issue here, which struck me reading this, is that the will of God, as it outworks in us, is not some robotic thing where everything is planned and organized to the nth degree. And we have our Outlook calendar filled out for the next three years and it's all, everything's lined up. It's not something either where everything clicks smoothly into place like some well-oiled machine. This is not how the body of Christ and the will of God works. We're We're not a corporate entity. 
will, like it did with Paul here, the will of God, I believe, he will cause it to burn inside of us, motivating us, pushing us towards an outcome, and often being frustrated and hindered in that outcome, or just distracted from it by other things that come up in the will of God. But it'll be burning inside of us. Because I believe God always gives the motivation ahead of the time. So if you have a motivation and a desire, perhaps even you've had it for years, and it's burning inside and you can't get away from it, but you've, you've had no opportunity to fulfill it, or it seems that it's been stopped, or the time never seems right, don't give up on it. Don't just say, oh, well, it mustn't be the will of God. This was the case here for Paul. He was longing, he was pushing, he wanted to, he wanted to. God gives the motivation before, long and often well before the time. A vision, a motivation, a desire, something that you're made for, some even little direction that you feel you need to go in. God's timing will come when it comes. Pray and wait for it. God decides when things fall into place. Paul will get to Rome, and I'm sure he had no idea how he would. He would end up going there as a prisoner in another two, three years. He'd end up under escort to the very emperor. That's how he got to Rome. And you will be amazed at what, how the Lord outworks his will in your life. That will that is burning inside you. So, as I say, Paul is straining at the leash now to get to Rome for a long time. But, of course, he's not coming to see the sites. He's not coming to see the, the forum and the, and the Colosseum wasn't built yet. He's not coming to see the games. He's not coming to see the great Senate. He's not coming to see any of these things. His desire, he makes it plain. He wants to come to Rome. I'm eager, he says, to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. That's my burning longing, to preach the gospel. And you might say, to who is it? Well, is it just to go out amongst the unbelievers in Rome? Yes, of course it is. That was his, his mission, he says earlier in the, in the epistle. He, his calling was to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. That was his message as an, as an apostle, as an evangelist. But it wasn't just to the unbelievers. It was to the Christians in Rome to strengthen and encourage them and their faith, to bring them deeper in the gospel. You know what? The gospel is for us all through our lives. Unsaved, saved, the gospel. Preach the gospel. It's for us. And he makes this great and famous proclamation. He says, because I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This wonderful motto, if you want to hammer it up over, it, over our heads. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And I believe, and I just came to me a couple of weeks back, that my conviction, our conviction in this statement, that's, the, that's our pulse as a Christian. That's the beating heart of the apostle. It's the beating heart of the Christian. And I want to challenge my own heart because I was challenged by it. 
What's my conviction in this statement? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus because it is the power of God. Not it might be or it could be or maybe in certain circumstances, but it is the power of God unto salvation. To all who believe, not to some, not to the easier cases, to all who believe. Check your pulse. Is it weak and thready? If you're a believer, you have a pulse and you will have right to your dying day. You'll have a spiritual pulse. Doesn't matter who you are, how wayward you might be, you have a pulse. But check your pulse. Of course, there are reasons why we can, we can be a little bit weak on this, on this not being ashamed of the gospel. The obvious one, of course, I'm sure, I'm sure there isn't a Christian who doesn't struggle with it. I know I, I have struggled, I continue to struggle, we all struggle with it. It's the fear of man's opinion, because the gospel is a foolish message on the human level. To be ashamed of the gospel is part of our fallen condition because it doesn't make sense to the natural mind. But folks, we have to resist this and we have to, if you like, steady and stabilize the ground under our feet as God's people and insist to myself, I am not going to be ashamed of this gospel. Why? Because no matter what it sounds like, no matter what it appears like to those who are listening, it is the power of God unto salvation. And there's another aspect, apart from that fear of men's opinion, which I'm sure we all struggle with, but there's another use of that term to be ashamed, where Paul speaks about elsewhere. He says in Philippians that his earnest hope is that in nothing in his Christian experience that in nothing I will be ashamed, but that in everything I will glorify God by my life or my death. Christ will be glorified. So there's a sense in that word ashamed to also mean to be let down, to be disappointed, to somehow not fully trust in something. It's gonna, it's, I'm going to end up ashamed. I'm going I'm to end up a bit let down here by the gospel. Not quite sure of it. But again, we must, this is a stand I believe we must take. It's like a spiritual, if we want to strengthen our heart, we go to the gym, we go for a run, we get out walking. We want to strengthen our pulse in this statement. We must exercise and stand on this ground and get into the word of God and say, no, I am going to be convinced in my spirit that it is the power of God unto salvation. For him... Even in Rome, with its philosophers, its senators, its pagan gods, its perversions, its decadence, its gladiators. This is a city where people go for a Sunday, Sunday afternoon treat and watch people kill each other. This is their diversion. This is a city with hundreds of gods and with a, an arrogant wisdom. And yet Paul says, I'm, I'm, I'm dying to get there. And somehow we think that our century and our generation is worse. And oh, if only we were living when people actually believed in God, we might have a starting point. No, let us, let us not allow ourselves to get shaky 
on the gospel because of our culture and our environment and the world we live in. It's no different. It's no different to, to Rome. And I love that Paul said this about Rome because Rome was the heart of the pagan empire that he lived in. A great empire, but a pagan one. Even in our godless world with its wisdom and its luxury, I'm not ashamed. It's still the power of God. Even with the needs and issues that we face in our own lives and that we encounter with people we attempt to share the gospel with, the needs are often terrible and seemingly intractable. The needs in our own lives at times seem intractable, seem unsurmountable. But do we give way and say, well, you know what? I feel the gospel is, a, is likely to be a letdown here. No, it is the power of God to everyone who believes. Whether it's the Apostle Paul preaching it, of course, it was fine for him. He's the great apostle. Or whether it's little old me, it doesn't matter. It does not matter. A stumbling message of the gospel from our lips, a stumbling faith in the gospel from the poorest saint is, has within it the capacity to be the power of God unto salvation. Whether it's in the time of the New Testament, a time of mighty revival, or in the time of the great falling away and resurgent paganism that we're living through, it doesn't matter. It is still the power of God to salvation, to all who believe in every time, for every believer, in every circumstance. And I just want to encourage us tonight, as I encourage myself, to get our feet solid on this ground. This, this, this our, our ground underneath can, can become shaky without us even realizing it. We can lose a bit of confidence. We can lose a bit of sort of mm, certainty. And we have all these reasons why. <laughs> no, let us stand on this ground. I am not moving one inch off this ground. The gospel is the power of God of salvation to everyone who believes. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So I believe to, to help us in this, there's nothing better than preaching the gospel to ourselves. Not to be fluffy, vague Christians with some vague ideas. Get ourselves grounded, folks, in the gospel. Get our minds locked in here. And that's something we all have to do ourselves, in our own lives, in our own devotions. But just briefly tonight, I want to take a quick run at a couple of aspects of this glorious gospel. A couple of foundation stones, if you like, just to help us to maybe step into this in a, in a deeper way. And these are the two unveilings that this uh, chapter speaks about. Now, I, I use the word unveilings for, deliberately, and I'll, I'll get on to that. And those two unveilings are wrath apart from the gospel and righteousness through the gospel. And both unveilings are gradual, I believe, and both contain the mercy and the justice of God, but with radically different outcomes. So let's start with the unpleasant one, the unveiling of wrath, then we'll get on to the, we'll wrap up with the unveiling of righteousness. 
So the unveiling, I'm using this word as I advisedly, the, the scripture as I read it, it's, it, it says in um, verse 17, for in it the righteousness, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And then it says in the next verse, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And this word revealed in both contexts is exactly the same. It's, it's a word we all know. It's, it's apocalypse, apocalypsis. Now, I know we use that word to somehow talk about apocalyptic as if it's something terrible. It just means an unveiling, a removal of a cover. Something that was covered up is now being unveiled. And this unveiling of wrath, again, not a very pleasant topic, but we must address it. Because God loves with intense love every man, woman, and child ever born. But he hates wickedness and unrighteousness, and he will judge the unrepentant. That's the sad reality, folks, and we can't be shaky on this. And what Paul addresses here, the kind of starting point or the genesis of wickedness that God will judge in mankind that begins to bring an unveiling of that wrath is not so much the faults and failings. You know, Asher, I'm, I'm, only, I'm only human. It's, that's not, it's, it's not our little sins and our failures and all of that. That's not the core issue. There is, it, it is to a degree. But what he targets here specifically, which is where it all starts to go wrong, is our suppressing of the truth. He says the wrath of God is unveiled against men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is the serious charge in God's eyes. Because it goes on to say that everyone, every person who has ever been born is given two things. They're given a basic knowledge of God, that he exists through creation. And you can, t- you can say, I'm an atheist, atheist I'm, I'll tell you, you're not. Or you, you once weren't. God has given you a knowledge that he exists. So that you are without excuse. And that's given so that, as Paul puts it to the Athenians, we might feel after him. He gives us this that we might feel after him. And I believe that this is especially the case for the young. I think there's a window into the soul of a child. I've sometimes heard some of my colleagues discussing their children, asking about God and the Bible, and they're poo-pooing it. And I just feel so sad inside. There's a window in the soul of that child to the Lord God. And this is why, you know, you Sunday school teachers, you are doing the most privileged, amazing work. You have an access to the soul that's unique in children. And unfortunately, the wickedness is as we get older, we start muddying up that opening. We start pulling down the blinds. We start suppressing that truth. 
That's the first thing. And the second thing he has given to everyone who's ever born is a basic knowledge of right and wrong. The law in the Old Testament was given to clarify lots of details in terms of righteousness, but Romans makes it plain. Whether you have the law or whether you don't have the law, you know right and wrong. You have a basic knowledge of it. So that, again, you are without excuse. And this ref- that suppressing of the truth concerning God, concerning right and wrong, and a refusal to acknowledge him, as it says here, and worship him and thank him, that begins the long and gradual unveiling of wrath. And it's an unveiling. It's gradual. It's not immediate. The Lord gives us chance after chance after chance because he loves us. It's a gradual unveiling like something, a, something, a great work being slowly opened up. And it speaks about how if we continue to suppress and suppress, we continue to resist that which we know and we push against God's boundaries, eventually he says, I let them break. I let you break through my boundary. And I, you'll be given up, first of all, to the lusts of your hearts, from which springs all kinds of bad behavior. We don't need to get into the ins and outs of it. And he says, if you keep going, keep pressing against me, and keep suppressing further, you'll then be given up to dishonorable passions. Not just the normal lusts, but the, the lusts that are more out there. Dishonorable lusts, it calls them. All the perversions and all the things that filling our society today. And if you say, keep going, he gives you up to a debased mind. The mind begins to move out into, an, into a, a darker place. The body, then the mind. And he says that they receive in themselves the penalty for their error. So the price will gradually be paid, I believe, in the life that continues to suppress the truth in physical effects in the body, emotional turmoil, mental health. These are all the areas that begin to have a slow unveiling of God's wrath in the life. But yet in this is mercy. It's mercy, folks. In the next chapter, he speaks to these unrepentant people rhetorically. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So he, he brings these unveiling of trouble in a life, of physical and mental effects, in order to bring us to our senses. You can read in the book of Leviticus where they were under the law and the Lord says, if you disobey my laws, this was before the new covenant, you do this and I'll send this upon you. 
And if you continue, I'll send something worse upon you. And if you continue, I'll yet send something yet worse. And even for this, if you don't turn, I'll send something worse. And eventually you'll be banished from your land. But even there, if you turn, I'll bring you back. It's like the Lord every step of the way, even the things that come upon a life as a consequence of sin. Folks, they're there in love and mercy to give another chance, another chance, to, like the prodigal, to bring us to our senses. He would never in that story have come to his senses if he'd been living high. And oh, God often gives people, degenerate, wicked, behaving people, long lives. Why? In mercy. In mercy. To give an opportunity to feel the pain of what they're doing and the truth that they're suppressing, that they might turn to God. Oh, that Jesus' love is wonderful. Even in wrath, even in this unveiling of wrath, there's such a patience and a forbearance and a kindness because he wants to bring to repentance the life to submit and bow before God and say, Lord, you exist and I acknowledge you and I worship you and that's the beginning of salvation. Oh, it's, I believe it's guaranteed once a person turns around, just acknowledges, turns away from suppressing that truth. It's not about you got to go and get yourself cleaned up and get dried out and all these kind of, no, not at all. You've got to acknowledge God and the rest will follow. Oh, hallelujah. And if you're listening to me tonight and you're in that position, I plead with you. I plead with you. Turn. Turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Finally then, the unveiling of righteousness. Oh, and this is the beating heart of God. Oh, this is the heart of God, folks. The righteousness, in the gospel it says that the righteousness of God is revealed or unveiled from faith to faith. Now why is it unveiled? You might say by the time Paul writes this, we've had four millennia of God's righteousness and his laws being revealed. But this is a new unveiling of the most amazing reality And it's outlined in a few verses in chapter 3. We'll just read them quickly. I'm nearly done. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been shown apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness, righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh, this righteousness is wonderful. It's a new revelation It's apart from the law. It's apart from obey my law and you're righteous. It's apart from it altogether. It's now revealed in sinners who believe God and are justified through the gospel. And I know we all know this, but it's still so wonderful. 
It's a new righteousness. He says, to show his righteousness at the present time. This is a new revelation. It's an unveiling of the most glorious work, God's work of redemption, which he now wants to show us, which he now wants to unveil like a great work of beauty. His righteousness revealed. And you know what? It's immediately revealed the minute you believe in God for the forgiveness of your sins and trust in Christ. There's an immediate unveiling, an immediate revelation, and then it is continuously revealed in greater depth and breadth as you progress through a life journey of faith. It's revealed from faith to faith. This is what the word of God says. The, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Through this journey of faith, his righteousness in our lives is revealed. It's wonderful. His righteousness and again, just, just some pointers if you want to study this book yourself, but he uses the life of Abraham to illustrate this. Abraham's life was basically, a, if, if you take from when he left Ur to when he sacri- had to, was told to sacrifice his son, it was a 40-year journey of faith centered around one core promise, in his case of an offspring and the keeping of that offspring. But of course, this was just a promise that was related ultimately to the promise of salvation through Jesus and through the work of the cross. And in this journey of faith for us that unveils in our lives his righteousness, there is a general aspect of our faith and there is some specific aspects. Now that general aspect of our faith, it's what Jesus did for us in Calvary. We stand and we move forward in that by faith. We grow confident in it. It's total. It's perfect. We, 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 we learn to understand as we move forward, sin will not have dominion. No matter how hard I find things, no matter how many times I fall, sin will not have dominion. Whatever way things appear, we learn to have faith and confidence in our Savior in all circumstances. This is what Abraham had to learn. Things look bleak. Things looked impossible with the fulfillment of this promise God had given him. And he had to learn not to put his hope in how things appeared for him, for his wife. And this is the journey, folks, for every one of us that unveils in your life and mine the righteousness of God by faith. It's a walk of faith. Not looking at the circumstances, not considering what they're saying, but holding on to the promise of God and believing what Christ did for us in Calvary. And there are also specific aspects to our faith related to the promises of God. Sometimes the Lord in his grace gives us specific promises in our lives as part of this journey of unveiling. And when we believe him on those promises, it's counted to us for righteousness. And his righteousness is further unveiled in our lives. All the promises he gives. Look look for him to give you promises by his spirit. And there are some promises that are given to every believer. There's a promise for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's to everyone. 
And if you haven't been baptized in the Spirit, lay hold on that promise. It's for you to lay hold of. It's unto you. And as you enter and step in by faith into his promise, his righteousness in your life is revealed more and more and more. Oh, it's a wonderful, wonderful journey. From faith to faith, unveiling through the gospel in our lives and its impact on the lives around us, God's wonderful righteousness. So in conclusion, let's stand on this ground and not be shaken. I am. Let's, let's say it to ourselves as we, as we go into the week, into the days. I, I am not ashamed. I'm not going to be ashamed of this gospel. It is the, it is the power of God unto salvation. Let our spiritual pulse be quickened into this very heartbeat of the life of God within us. He wants to unveil something glorious in your life. There was once wrath being unveiled. Now that's cancelled. It's gone. There's no more. Nothing. The only thing to be unveiled in your life is righteousness, mercy and goodness. In a way, we are God's great triumph. His great trophy. And he's just like a great work of art. He's wanting to unveil it little by little. Till we stand in awe and wonder what he has done. Isn't it wonderful? In sinners. In sinners. This gospel is amazing. And just to finish on on one other verse. Which speaks about another unveiling. And even an even greater one. Later on in this book in Romans 8. He says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be unveiled in us. Hallelujah. Bless his name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for tuning in with us today. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Cork Church. Also, make sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you have any questions at all, you can email us info at corkchurch.com or just check out our website, www.corkchurch.com. Again, thank you for tuning in and see you next time. God bless.